Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. And it is a good morning. I think God's smiling on us, took care of the rain. I'm looking forward to the festival this afternoon. Y'all coming? Yeah, it's going to be, it, it's really going to be wonderful. Uh, all the activities and the apple pie, uh, by the way, that's a baking contest, not an eating contest. Uh, we can enjoy some things and uh, it's going to be a lot of just fun, fun time. So looking forward to it. Is it the reason that you're here today? No. I heard someone say no. You didn't come here today because of the festival that we're having at 2 o'clock afterwards. And that's likely the answer for so many. Why are we here today? What are we doing here? I hear all kinds of things. I heard to praise the Lord. Uh, What else did I hear? Someone else? Say what? To be fed. Okay, I heard that. I heard that. There's a lot of reasons we're gathered here today, and we, we could have all kinds. I could have you all stand up and tell me why you're here today. It's not because it's a particular day. It's not because it's Sunday. That's not the reason we're here. It's not likely that it's because we've been compelled, although maybe if we're with our parents, we might have been compelled I know I was compelled for a while, and I was required, but most of us, we're not here because we have to be here. The the primary reason is not necessarily some of the things that I've already heard, the the shared interests, the, the common pursuits. The reason that we're here is a person. And that person's name is Jesus. And for the next couple of months, we're just going to be focusing all about Jesus. He's the reason we're here. Without Jesus, all these things that we heard and all the common interests that we share, we wouldn't even share those things if Jesus had never come into the world. Some don't even believe that Jesus existed, that he didn't even come into the world. Did Jesus exist? Did he exist? Did did a man named Jesus walk the earth in the first century in in the region that surrounded the city of Jerusalem? Is that a historical fact? It is a historical fact, and uh, if maybe you haven't rounded that corner yet, historians talk about Jesus as a historical fact. One historian, Will Durant, he's a famous 20th century historian. He wrote a, a volume of history. It was called The Story of Civilization, it's 11, it's 11 books in the uh, chronological series, nearly 10,000 pages. 
Will Durant died in his 90s. He hadn't finished. He began at really the beginning, and he made it through about the time of Napoleon. And when he died, he had notes for two more volumes. He wanted to get to about 1945 or so, at least according to the notes he left, but he didn't get there. So uh, his volume ends at number 11, the age of Napoleon, but he began as early as possible. And in volume three of his work, uh, Will Durant completed that in about the mid-1940s, and the timeline had made it into the first couple of centuries A.D. Would this historian include anything about Jesus? I've got volume three here, and let me flip it open to about page, 100, page 553, to be exact. It's chapter 26. It has a simple one-word title to chapter 26 in this volume three. The historian wrote, the title of the chapter is Jesus. Jesus. Let me read you a, a couple of little excerpts here from this chapter. Will Durant opens the chapter with three words. It's a question. Did Christ exist? Did Christ exist? Is the life story of the founder of Christianity the product of human sorrow, imagination, and hope? A myth comparable to the legends of Krishna, Osiris, Addis, Adonis, Dionysus, and Mithras? One of the most far-reaching activities of the modern mind has been the higher criticism of the Bible. The mounting attack upon its authenticity and veracity, countered by the heroic attempt to save the historical foundations of Christian faith. Durant starts this chapter saying, is Jesus a myth? And he goes on to speak of the attack on the, the history of Christ. And he, he says there's this thing called higher criticism that had come up within, I'll say 200 years or so of uh, Durant's time right there in the 40s when he was writing. And he goes on in this chapter to outline all the, uh, the attacks on the historical fact of the Bible, specifically the New Testament, and the authenticity of Jesus Christ. And then he turns, and he begins to point out some of the solid historical evidence about the New Testament. And he comes to his conclusion after several pages. And he writes this, and again, this is, this is not a, a writer that's writing from a Christian perspective necessarily. He didn't write a Christian history. He wrote the history of civilization. He writes this, in summary, it is clear that there are many contradictions between one gospel and another. However, the contradictions the contradictions are of minutia, not substance. In essentials, the synoptic gospels agree remarkably well and form a consistent portrait of Christ. In the enthusiasm of its discoveries, the higher criticism has applied to the New Testament 
tests of authenticity so severe that by them, a hundred ancient worthies. For example, Hammurabi, David, Socrates would fade into legend. That a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality, so lofty an ethic, and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the Gospels. That's from the secular historian who wrote the history of civilization, which is the most popular history series of all time. It's what made Simon and Schuster as a publishing house. And his first line was, did Christ exist? And his answer was an emphatic yes. Jesus did exist, and he walked the earth. Now, perhaps you might concede that. You might say, okay, yes, a man named Jesus in the first century in a region called uh, Palestine where Jerusalem was and all around there, that man walked. But who was he really? Who is he? Who is Jesus? Now, to some, Jesus is merely an, ex- an exclamation. Julie and I were walking the other night, just three, four nights ago. I think it was Tuesday night. We try to walk our neighborhood as often as we can. Usually we're walking when it's dark out. And this particular night, it was dark. There was no uh, moonlight. The, uh, the clouds were overhead. It was really dark. In, in our neighborhood, in and around all the multiple blocks, there are no streetlights. So we're walking, and we're quite a distance from our house, and walking down a street. And as we're walking, there is a man coming out of his house. And uh, he's, he's dressed for bed. He's got a T-shirt on, a pair of shorts. And he's walking around to the back of his car. There, evidently, he forgot something. He's going to open up the hatchback. And I don't know, maybe it's about three, four feet from the sidewalk. And we're just walking quietly. We weren't chatting, just walking. And as he came around the back of his vehicle and he went to open the back, he realized just two or three feet behind him, someone was there. And it startled him. He turned very quickly. He jumped, like jumping out of his skin. And he said one word, Jesus. (laughs) We stopped. And I said, sorry, I really didn't mean to startle you. uh, Julie, she looked at him and she said, it's okay. Jesus is good. (laughs) He turned, he opened his car. We, We continued walking. But it's an example of Jesus, the exclamation. In a moment of panic, when we're startled, Jesus, he's the exclamation. What do others think when you ask, who is Jesus? 
Let's consider some others. I have a, just a brief little video of people being asked, who's Jesus? Historical figure? I don't know. I think he was just a person. I don't know. Just a normal person like us? He was a selfless person. I have no clue. He was a man. I think he was a marketing genius because he got people to believe him. I don't, I don't think he's the son of God. I don't believe that at all. If David Copperfield was in the day of Jesus, he would be Jesus. I'm pretty sure he existed. Like, I'm not going to say that he didn't exist. He was God's son, but so was Gandhi, and so was Muhammad, and so was, you know, we're all God's children. Jesus is someone I pray to. Jesus is also Isa in Arabic, and he was a messenger as well. He was just extremely enlightened, like, religiously and morally. He was somebody that um, just tried to um, impart wisdom on others and um, make the world a better place. I think he saw something that a lot of people didn't see and still don't see in others. There's a, there's a few opinions. If we walked the streets, we'd likely discover many, many more. Jesus, he's, he was a normal person, a good person, a selfless, a selfless person, or he was a magician. He was a magician like David Copperfield. Or he was a, a marketing man. Some say he was a con man. He was a prophet like Muhammad. He imparted wisdom. He was a smart guy. He taught people. He had great ethics, and he taught positive morality. But he's not the son of God. He's not the son of God, no. That, that's, people, they're not going there. Now, who is Jesus? It's not really a new question. It's not a novel question. Many have asked. Even Jesus asked. Yes, Jesus asked. And we're going to look at a portion of the New Testament and see the, the question that Jesus asked. And remember, Will Durant, in the mid-40s, he wrote, there's so much evidence so much evidence for the New Testament. And if we applied the same authenticity tests to other historical documents, the way that the skeptics want to put to test the New Testament, all those other historical documents and figures, like Socrates, they would just fade away. They wouldn't even exist. They would have no historical support at all. And since... Durant wrote his book, so much more evidence for the New Testament has come into view. There have been so many more discoveries of New Testament manuscripts. For most of antiquity, only a handful of manuscripts even exist. Uh, for example, history of a guy like Alexander the Great. Isn't that a whole lot? I think... On two hands, we can count what we have. And often those copies are a long distance from the original, 
hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years, centuries. For the New Testament, thousands and thousands of manuscripts exist, and some of them go back to less than a hundred years from the original. That's historical significance. So let's open up our historical, historically accurate New Testament to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. We're going to read a passage that Jesus, uh, where he's speaking and he poses a couple of questions to his closest followers, this group of 12 men that he had chosen, and he's going to ask them two questions. A little background, though, before we get there. Jesus had recently been teaching and uh, preaching a whole bunch of people, thousands of people. They were on a hillside. Jesus was captivating them with his teaching, so much so that they stuck around for not just one or two days, but three days. They had been parked and listening to him, captivated, and they were getting hungry, sitting for three days. Now, Jesus began to feel some compassion for these hungry people. So he asked his friends, these closest 12, to help him feed the people. And they were just incredulous. How are we going to do this? But with only a few loaves of bread and a few fish, Jesus prayed over that food and he said to his helpers, distribute the food. And that crowd of 4,000 was fed and there were leftovers. Now, after leaving this crowd of people, Jesus, he was walking with his 12 closest companions, these 12 disciples, and we get to this point where he's going to ask them a couple questions. It's Matthew 16, verses 13 to 16. And it reads this way. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Two questions. Two questions Jesus posed here to his followers, his closest ones. And the first one, what do people say about me? Who do they say I am? Who do the people say I am? And Jesus used a reference to himself. He said, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, his followers knew Jesus was talking about himself. This account is also in the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke. We heard even a guy like Will Durant, a secular historian, said, these Gospels coordinate very well together. And in those two other Gospels, they put the question simply, who do people say I am? Well, Jesus asked the question, knowing that these crowds that followed him around, multitudes like the 4,000 that he had recently miraculously fed, they all talked about, who is this guy? 
Who might he be? And yeah, some said, well, he's a, he's a great prophet. He's a prophet. They compared him to some of the Old Testament prophets. They said, oh, he's like John the Baptist. In other words, he's a good guy. He's a good teacher. He imparts wisdom. He does some powerful stuff. Maybe he's a magician, but he's not the son of God. The crowds debated. The multitudes talk, but they, they hadn't crossed to the point where they could say, Jesus is divine. They didn't believe that he was with God ever. They didn't believe he was God. Now, could they have believed that Jesus was born miraculously, born of a virgin woman? Not likely. Not likely. No matter what Jesus uh, did, no matter the miracles that he worked, people, they didn't come around to, this is God in the flesh. Even in his own hometown, uh, he was rejected. If we back up just a couple of uh, chapters to Matthew 13, we can find out what, what they thought about Jesus even in his own hometown. Verses 54 to 57. Coming to his hometown, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue. And they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? So they're asking the question. Isn't this the carpenter's son, they said? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. There's an interesting line of scripture. The people of his own hometown were offended because he was teaching so much with authority and wisdom, and he was performing miraculous signs. One might think that would be welcomed, but no. No, they took offense at him, even after witnessing all his wisdom and his power. And this is somewhat of what, what we've already seen this morning in, in our little video. That is still the way Jesus is perceived. That's how he is seen. He's like a magician, like David Copperfield. Oh, if David Copperfield would live back then, then he'd be Jesus. Oh, just a con man, you know, fooling so many people. But he's not the son of God. He's not God. He's not divine. There's significance in these questions of Jesus and real significance when he turned and he looked at his disciples directly. And in my imagination, he takes a minute to pause and get their attention, look at them intently. And he asks, who do you say I am? How are they going to answer? They'd been with Jesus nearly three years. They had witnessed his teaching that confounded the wise. They saw his interactions daily with people of all walks of life, leaders of the Jewish faith and lepers who were cast aside. Jesus talked to children. He spoke with widows. He interacted with the military people. He interacted with the civilians. He interacted with the rich and the poor. 
he showed compassion to so many. And then he displayed the power of God when he made the lame to walk and the blind to see. And he opened up the, the ears of the deaf. And he showed authority of God when he said on more than one occasion, your sins are forgiven. Now all this, his closest 12, they'd witnessed. What are they going to say when he turned and he looks them in the eyes and he says, who do you say I am? And one speaks up. Simon Peter, Peter, who's somewhat of a, a spokesman for this group, he answers directly, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And that answer is significant. Peter's answer, it was distinct. It was set apart from all the other opinions of the people. He didn't say, oh, you're, you're a prophet. You're a great teacher. You're a messenger who's given us so much. He didn't compare him to another prophet like John the Baptist. Peter said something that his friends would clearly understand. He said, Messiah. Now, these Jewish men knew what Messiah meant. Messiah means Christ. In the Greek, that's, that's the word that's there in the Greek New Testament. Christus, Christ, the anointed of God, Messiah. These Jewish men in their history understood what this meant. Their history was our Old Testament, and that Old Testament of ours, the history that they had, it pointed again and again to Messiah, the anointed of God. And Peter, he states this, and then he doubles down. He emphasizes his answer. He doesn't stop at just saying, you're Messiah. He not only said, Jesus, you're Messiah. He said, you are the son of the living God. And that was a direct reference to divinity. Jesus' wisdom, his power, his authority to forgive sins. Peter connected it all to God. And thus, he connected Jesus to God. Peter was convinced of it. He spoke from his heart. This was from his inside. He, it doesn't say that Peter took time to really think on this. He didn't gather his friends and say, hey, how should we answer this question? Let's think about this. We need to study up because Jesus always asks us these tough questions and sometimes it seems like a test and oh, it's so difficult. No, he answered directly. He's speaking from the heart. You're the Messiah. You're the son of God, the son of the living God. But did his mind comprehend it all? And it doesn't seem so for what mind can comprehend it all. Our human minds really can't comprehend humanity and divinity all the same. We can't comprehend the creator becoming just like the created. Peter didn't comprehend it all that we know. And it, it's recorded just a, a few lines later in Matthew 16, it's verses 21 uh, to 23. And it says this. From that time on, 
Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, they shall, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter had just said, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But when Jesus began to explain it, this is what this means. This is what it means to be Messiah, the Christ, the anointed of God, the Son of God. It, it means, I'm, I'm going to die. And Peter was repulsed. How could it be? Jesus said he's going to be killed. Even though he said he's going to be raised from the dead, Peter didn't comprehend it. What, what's it all about? Why? Poor Peter just wanted Jesus to stick around. He wanted him to stay. But that was not the plan. It wasn't the plan. Jesus said, Peter, you're not thinking spiritually. Peter wanted to keep Jesus alive, but that was not the purpose of Messiah. The purpose of Messiah was to conquer death and to offer eternal life. And that's something beyond this natural world. Something forever beyond this world. Had Peter thought about it, had he taken time to dig into his Old Testament, dig into his history as a Jewish man, he might have remembered, he might have recalled something from the Old Testament. He might have called to mind what those prophets of old, the prophets of God, had written about the Lord's anointed. And I'll give you one, one passage, a, a passage from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. One example, this is Isaiah 53, 3 to 6. And it reads, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Peter did remember that line of Scripture, that line of prophecy from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. We know it because he used it. He used it in a letter that he wrote years after Jesus was raised from the dead, where in that letter he explained this Jesus, this Messiah, this one that was resurrected, is a living hope. 
in the Old Testament, Isaiah, he was pointing to Jesus. He was pointing to that living hope. He was pointing to the one who would have to die. Jesus was explaining that to Peter. And here in the Old Testament, it says he's going to be pierced. Speaking of nails and hands and feet, that he'd be beaten and whipped. And what did it mean? What did it mean that the Lord would lay on him the sins of us all? Well, Peter was explaining that in his letter because he came to understand it. And it means that the Lord's anointed, the Christ, would receive the penalty for the sin of all, not his own punishment. No, they thought, oh, maybe he's being punished for his own sins. No. My punishment was put on him. Your punishment was put on him. And you might be thinking, what what are you talking about? Why would I need to be punished? I don't deserve any punishment. I'm a good person. I'm not a sinner. So don't be saying that anyone needs to, to be punished for me. No, 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 no. No, maybe for you, but not for me. I'm, I'm a good person. And, and that there is a lie that many have believed. There's more to life beyond this human body. And deep down, we all know it. Creation all around us, it speaks. It, it screams that there is a creator, a God, and you can deny it. You can deny it. And that doesn't make what you believe to be true. The lie is there is no God. The truth is there is a God. He is pure and he's holy. And mankind has rejected his holiness, rebelled against his holiness. Every single person has some guilt, guilty of sin. A sin that has offended God. And that's a rejection of God. Some believe there is no God. Others believe, yeah, there's a God. But I'm good. I'm okay. I'm righteous. The lie is that you're righteous, sinless. Holy enough to stand in the Creator's presence. If Almighty God were standing right here before us right now, every single one of us would have something to be ashamed of, something that we're guilty of, and we could not stand in his presence except for Jesus. Except for Jesus. Without Jesus, we would not be able to stand in the presence of God. Sin has driven a wedge between creature and created. It, 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 it's a division, a, a wedge that breaks and separates. Jesus, Messiah, the anointed of God, he has come to connect. He repairs. He restores. He has offered a way to be in the presence of God without guilt and without shame. He's decisively dealt with the matter of sin when he went to the cross. He was pierced in his hands and his feet. He was crushed, he was beaten, and he was whipped so that our brokenness, 
my brokenness, my rebellion, and my sin could be healed. And yours too. The Lord laid on him the sin of us all. He went to a cross and he received a death sentence for sin. Then he beat death. He beat death to prove that his offer for eternal life is a guarantee. Now Jesus is looking at us. He's looking at us intently, eyeball to eyeball, and he's asking, who do you say I am? And can you see his eyes? Are you ready to answer? He anticipates our answer. Can you see delight in his eyes? Who do you say I am? And how do you answer? What's your answer? This Bible is true. It's authentic. It stood the test of time. And it stood the test that no other, no other document in history has been tested so harshly. And this stands far and away above them all. It's truth. And in it, Jesus asks a question. Who do you say I am? What is your answer? He's a magician. He's a good man. He's a con man. To receive what he's done, winning of eternal life, you must answer as clearly and as concisely as Peter did. You are Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Peter said it from the heart. He didn't say it from the mind. Does your heart respond the same way? Jesus puts the question to all of us, and all of us are going to answer. We are all going to answer. You may not want to answer today. You may say, I'll put it off, but there will be a day, and it's coming, the day that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven and earth and under earth, and every tongue will acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But we need to answer that question before that day comes. We need to answer the question. I know when I answered the question, I remember the day I answered the question, and my life changed. My eyes were opened. I was blind, and now I could see. I could see Jesus looking at me, asking, who do you say I am? And it was that day that I said, you're Lord, you're God. And I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn from what I've been doing. I'm going to turn from my own way. I'm going to turn from believing that I got this, and I'm good enough, and I'm righteous enough, because I'm not. I believe you died for me, and I want to repent of my sin, and I want to come to you. It's a question we all have to answer. As we prepare for our communion this morning, if there's any in here that you haven't answered the question, our communion is open to all those who are in Jesus Christ, all those who have definitively, definitively answered and said, yes, 
you are my Lord and my Savior. I've turned from sin. I've answered you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we're going to sit down and celebrate what he did for us, that he went to the cross. And when I ask our, our deacons and elders if you'd prepare to serve us, please. And as they're doing that, Look inside your heart. Have you answered the question? Later in the New Testament, after the Gospels, we're encouraged to examine ourselves and look in our hearts for what Jesus did for us. He gave his life. On the last day of his life, he had this dinner, this supper with his friends. I want to read that to you from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. We've been in these Gospels this morning. And consider what Jesus said. Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It ties right back to what Jesus had been predicted he would accomplish. From that prophet Isaiah, he would take on the sins of many. Forgive by making a covenant that's a promise, pouring out his life, letting his blood be spilled for many, all. And if you haven't received that, if you haven't answered that question this morning before this bread is given, let's take a minute to just look inside. And ask ourselves, have we answered the question definitively? And pray. Lord, if there's any in here who may be answering right now that question that you asked, Jesus, who do you say I am? And they're answering, finally. I'm looking in your eyes, Jesus, and I'm saying... I believe you died for me and I want to turn my life and my heart to you. God, I pray you'd receive them sincerely today and bless. Bless that heart, God. Bless the sincerity. The heart responding as directly as Peter did the first time you asked that question. Receive that person, God, as they turn and bless. And we thank you for it, God. We thank you in that name, Jesus. Amen. As you receive your bread, just hold it and we'll bless it together, signifying our unity as one people of God.
Let's hold our bread as we ask the Lord's blessing on it. God, once we were blind and now we see clearly who Jesus is, what he accomplished for us. And as we hold this bread, God, we're thankful for the blessing of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, Messiah, the anointed, the Christ, Son of God, divine, who gave his life that we might win eternal life. We remember what he did. We remember what he did in the giving of his life on that cross, being pierced, and we thank you for it. We thank you that we can stand in your presence, that we're righteous because of Jesus, because his forgiveness. He's washed away our sin. Thank you for that, God. Thank you. Bless this bread unto us. Bless it unto us as we receive it together. In his name, Jesus, amen. Let's eat together.
let's hold this cup as we ask God's blessing on it. Father God, we believe the words of Jesus that this cup represents the blood of a covenant, a promise that he made to win for us eternal life. Thank you that he gave his life, he spilled his blood, and that he beat out death. And he was raised to walk again. And he lives and he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you for that, God. Thank you for the blessing that we have coming to Christ and inheriting eternal life, a living hope. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you. Bless this cup unto us as we receive it gratefully. We receive it joyfully. In his name, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's drink together.
we love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. There's none like you. There's none like you, Jesus. Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. You're matchless. You're holy. You're righteous. Thou art our righteousness. You're our righteousness. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Jesus paid it all for us. If perhaps for the very first time today, you, you did open up and answer the question, who do you say I am? We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to pray with you. These altars are open at the end of every service. If you'd like to come for prayer, if you need prayer from one of our elders, they're always here at the end of every service too. So uh, after we close, if you need prayer. You don't need to run. You don't need to rush out. We'll definitely take some time to pray with you. Moses' brother Aaron gave him a blessing, a blessing to speak over the people. I'd like to share that blessing with you this morning. If you'd like to raise your hands. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for your people. Now, Father, bless them and keep them. Make your face to shine upon them. Be gracious unto them. Lift up your countenance upon each one and grant them peace. And may the peace of God that passes human understanding keep every heart and every mind and every soul through our Lord, our Savior, our Christ, Jesus. Amen.